Hello and welcome to That's News to Me, the podcast that turns the dictaphone on journalists talking to the hacks behind the headlines. I'm your host, Oliver Barnes. To the outside looking in, the world of news can seem confusing, jargonistic and exclusive. That's News to Me aims to go a little way to demystifying that world. Every week, I'll sit down with a different journalist to get a warts and all account of how they've survived the news industry and how they think the industry will survive. Hopefully, their anecdotes and advice will entertain the intrigued onlooker and inform the upstart journalist like myself. The guest for this week spent 13 years as a reporter at the BBC. He covered two UK general elections and as the Beeb's Middle East correspondent was on the ground during the insurgency in Iraq, the Gaza War and the Arab Spring. He's now left the world of news for a career in public relations and has brought his expertise in communications to bear in a book out from the 18th of April called PR for Humans. Our guest is Mike Sargent. Mike Sargent, welcome. Okay. Um, the first thing I'm interested in is you've crossed the Rubicon or maybe the river sticks, depending on someone's interpretation, into PR. Mm. How do you look back at journalism? And especially over the past four or five years since you've left the industry, since you've left the BBC, how do you look back on it and think, how's this changing? What are the challenges? Maybe you can kind of speak a bit more candidly about that, I suppose. Mm. Oh, well, I think just enormous relief that I'm not there trying to figure out some of the, the political dimensions that are unfolding at the moment. So, yeah, definite relief that I'm not standing outside buildings trying to make sense of certain issues. Um, a slight sense of I'm missing history, so yeah. that's always going to be there. I think once you work for the BBC, always a part of you is that BBC person. Mm -hmm. And when you cross over from journalism into communications, everyone says you're going over to the dark side. <laughs> hence the river sticks, perhaps. Yeah, hence yeah. the river sticks. Yeah. You can take different views on that. I, I, I now look back on journalism as a, a darker realm in many ways <laughs> because it is obsessed with things going wrong and, mm. and things. If it if it bleeds, it leads, is the old adage in news. And you know, death, disaster, scandal, mm. resignation, destruction, all makes news. Things getting better or progressing slowly or staying the same. How do make news. how do journalists characterise PRs then, or at least the way you see it now? Oh, journalists think of PRs as as, as selling out, taking the the money, uh, trying to spin things, trying mm. to make things wicked seem wonderful, uh, trying to distort the truth, trying to hide things, cover things up. Journalists have this idea in their minds that they are seekers of the truth. Yeah. Right, and that there's all these people out there who are trying to stop them. Getting is that something that you ever believed? Did you? I feel like you're you're talking journalists now, but when you were a journalist, did you believe that was the case? Or um, not really. I think at the end of my career in journalism, I realised there's not two sides to every story. There's a hundred sides or a thousand sides. Yeah. So there are, in fact, there are as many stories as there are perspectives from individuals within the stories and watching the stories. Yeah. So this idea there is there is a single truth yeah. that, that that we could discover um, I never really signed up to that so which perhaps is one of the reasons why I was never an investigative reporter I was never really a, a scoop getter I never wanted to kind of go and uncover something and, and, and reveal it to the world uh, what I what I enjoyed in, in journalism tremendously and I, and I found great great value in was taking complicated subjects and explaining them 
to people, mm. explaining what does it all mean. And in the BBC, there's a term called Widiam. What does it all mean? So you have the news, and then you have Widiam. And, and that is the really, really important bit. Because if you're just listing things that have happened, mm. it's quite hard for people to take in. But you need somebody there who's able to explain to an audience in an impartial way what all of this could mean. Have you ever seen the, the Charlie Brooker parody of how news is done, like the kind of typical news clip of how it's packaged up? It's, you know, I'm walking down the street and we have a monologue and then we cut to a shot of people on the high street and then it cuts to graphics and has like three bullet points. And it's mm. kind of a wonderful parody which catches that like kind of slightly formulaic side of broadcast news, which mm. I think comes hand in hand with the simplification. Did you ever feel that in your bones when you were doing it? Where you're like, hold on, I want to tell this story and there's so many different sides to it and I'm just losing those because I have to kind of adhere to that. Oh, sure. And, and very often, the, particularly in television, mm. the power of the pictures is, can be the enemy of the story. So you get pictures of something very dramatic happening, whether that's you know, a protester outside Parliament or a bomb going off or you know, someone unfurling a coloured banner or running onto a sports pitch. You know, and those shots are so powerful, mm. it can take over and distort the story. Yeah. So you've got, to be, you've got to be careful with those sorts of things. But as to formulaic reporting, yeah, absolutely, because you are providing packages often for a program. Editor of the program has certain expectations, like this will be two minutes long. It will definitely include the principal. It will definitely include someone reacting to what they've said. It might include some vox pops. It might include a graphic. Oh, make sure you use those shots at the beginning. In the piece to camera, I'd like you to say, and you get all yeah. of that. So there's a particular problem with domestic news stories where the editor have, has, thinks they have a lot of knowledge of the story and wants to control the outcome. The better situations as a reporter and as a correspondent where you're out in the field somewhere deeper and darker further away. Is that where kind of live news and the adrenaline of that is a bit more refreshing for you as a reporter I suppose because I did I had a kind of look at your your history while you were at the BBC mm. and it was very varied and mm. I was I was thinking you know you were in um, Iraq in like 2007-2008 you were in um, uh, you were present at the tsunami in 2004 in Thailand and then you know wind the clock forward and you're doing some local democracy stuff was yeah. that a bit of a come down almost where you're kind of like you've gone from beat like in uh, you know in, in Basra and now you're in Basildon yeah no massively <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I never really got over that so so what happened was I I did two years in the Middle East um, and this was after I'd done quite a lot of foreign reporting and the tsunami and other things but that was a that was a, a posting so we actually lived in Cyprus with, with my wife and uh, my young son and my second son was, was born there. And I was at that time going to Jerusalem a lot, to Beirut a lot, and into Baghdad hmm. pretty regularly, for three and a half, four weeks at a time, coming out um, to Amman, flying back to Cyprus, spending a couple of weeks there and going back in. Uh, and then other jobs came up. One was the Jerusalem job and one was the, the, the uh, job in, in Washington. And at that time, my kids were, were growing up a little bit. I could see the the pressures that we were under as a family with my continued mm. absences. I had to take a decision that I'm not going to do the danger spots. I'm not going to do wars. I'm not going to do things that are going to get me killed because I'm a father. So at that point, I had to, and it was a very difficult decision, I had to, to come back to, to, to London and go back really into what's called the taxi rank, which is where I'd been several years previously. Yeah. Uh, is the taxi rank a term used around the, the BBC? The taxi like, rank is the reporters who oh, sit, sit on a certain rank, desk and you wait rank. for this, whatever story comes up. Sure. And it's the, it's the place where 
I mean, it can be very good. It, yep. it, stories can happen and can propel you into in, in, in interesting situations. But uh, if you've done big stuff, you know, I'd done wars in Gaza, I'd done Iraq, I'd done, you know, um, all the political troubles in, in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. So I'd, I'd worked in 20 different countries and then I was back on the taxi road. Well, mainly because I didn't want to take those foreign jobs anymore. Yep. And so then you kind of come back and say, okay, let's work our way into domestic correspondent position, which is either political correspondent or a what came my way at that point was local government correspondent, yeah. which in a, in a way was relatively interesting. But I, and this is a lesson I think for anyone who's who's getting into journalism, my heart wasn't in the the subject. Yeah, you know? and it, as you say, very big come down from the big wars, the elections. Is it easier else. for it to be in the subject of the kind of thrilling, dramatic stuff? Though I think that's the case for most people. And yeah, the, there's a certain excitement and yeah. adrenaline, and that you get very into that, and some people lose their heads in all of that, and they end up drinking too much, their marriages fail, yeah. uh, they get post-traumatic stress. Uh, there's a lot of, of negatives that come in. I've seen that and I've, and I've, uh, I've, um, I've known a lot of colleagues who, who have suffered greatly. Do you think everyone, everyone comes to that kind of juncture of like, you know, how journalism, particularly that type of journalism where you're chasing incredibly dramatic, thrilling and, and basically dangerous stories, Everyone comes to that juncture at some point where it's going to clash with life because it is yeah, an obsessive trade. Everyone who trade, goes down that route, yeah. and I, I didn't initially. Actually, I came in as a business journalist. I was mm. reporting on the stock market. I was doing. I went to Frankfurt. It was all quite sort of calm, mm. and then I worked, worked on breakfast. Did some political reporting, but I had that kind of that itch to. I think as a lot of people do when they go into broadcasting the BBC to be the the great foreign correspondent and to have those those experiences. But I think most people wouldn't go near the danger zones actually. Most most of the reporters I knew just they would have said they did say no to going to Iraq at that time. When I went to Iraq in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, some of the biggest names in the BBC were just flat saying I'm not going. Were those some of the most violent years in Iraq? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was when the insurgency was at its peak. So particularly two thousand seven into into two thousand eight, a couple of thousand people getting killed every month. You had big, big suicide bombings uh, going off in in Baghdad and other cities. You had sectarian murders. Yeah. You had a lot of stuff going on, and and big, big names. I'm not going to list the names <laughs> now, but there were big names in the BBC yeah. who said, "I'm not going to Iraq." And you were just like, "Bam!" <laughs> with the jacket on. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, um, um, "I'm going." I, I don't know why I said that because mm. I had a, I had a young child and, and another one on the way so it was looking back I think it was kind of madness but but when you when you were there the strange mm. thing was it felt very very safe so we were in a we were in a compound on the actually the opposite side of the river from the green zone in Baghdad and that was a deliberate decision by the BBC not to be where the Americans were and the British were so we were actually near the French embassy. I suppose you would have anyway, but did that kind of make you feel very detached from the people that you were reporting on, Massively, right? Because yeah. you've got this, you've got your own kind of like personal BBC army almost. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It, was, it was very they strange don't. because a lot of the reporting we could have actually done just as well sitting in, in, the, in the BBC office in London. Um, we did go out into the streets in Baghdad. We went out for 20 minutes at a time, quick do some filming, a couple of interviews come back, but an awful lot of the reporting we did based on information that was gathered by incredibly brave uh, Iraqi stringers mm. around the country who were the eyes and ears on the ground. It was simply too dangerous for, for people, like, you know, particularly someone looking like me, to go out and tour around and, and gather our inf information firsthand. So we, 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 we did go out, but we often went out with 
uh, American soldiers. We went out in, in military helicopters. We did all of that stuff. We went on patrol. We went out in a, in a very simple kind of um, low-profile uh, van with the windows blacked out. So it didn't look like anything. It wasn't some great armoured convoy most of the time. But an awful lot of our days were spent just in the house. And, yeah. and so there was this detachment where we heard boom, 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 and, and you know bursts of gunfire every so often, occasionally mortars going overhead, but we didn't really feel connected with the... And you going. never felt in those moments as if you were putting your life on the line for, for it's news? It's hard to say. You don't really feel it. You feel, you feel pretty good. I, 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 I was sort of always looking around and thinking, who can I trust here? Because, you know, you, you work in a street where there are guards at the end of the street and you don't really know who they are. But I think the biggest thing that kept us safe in, in Iraq and one of the reasons why the BBC was very... You know, very successful there overall in terms of um, of the safety of its of its reporters was that we were never perceived as being part of the occupation. And again, that physical separation where we had the green zone over there and our our office over here meant that the Sunni uh, insurgents never saw us as the enemy, nor did the Shiite militia. Mm. Uh, they could have stormed our road if they'd really wanted to, but they didn't. There was tremendous goodwill towards the BBC. And another you know, occasion when that came to light was when um, a colleague of mine, Alan Johnson, got kidnapped in Gaza. Yep. Uh, this was in 2008, I think it would have been. And we, we didn't know what was going to happen to him. It was a very, very serious situation. And I was there to report on his kidnapping, but also trying to... Um, go and join demonstrations to get was, him. He was released. kidnapped for several months, right? Yeah, I think I think there it was, was like a campaign, yeah, and they they yeah. unfurled a banner on the yeah. TV centre and something. Yeah, like, there yeah. was a campaign, and we were campaigning. So we went to Bethlehem yeah. one day to do, and we we helped free Alan placards. Oh, so here that's interesting. So at, at a point there, you almost took on a kind of journalist but activist yeah, kind of. So role. we were in the yeah. story and reporting on the story <laughs> which was which was that's weird. a bit of a double I, I knew blind. Alan a bit I didn't know yeah. him as well as some of the people who really knew him well and it yeah. was very very strange and, and emotional for them but then on that day the, the, the demo in, in Bethlehem we were joined by also lots of Palestinian journalists who, who, who just came and, and joined us because they, they, they loved Alan and thought his reporting was very fair and balanced mm-hmm. and, and also then some, some heavily armed guys turned up with big beards and it turns out they were Islamic Jihad mm. And they joined the demonstration, so they, you know, we found ourselves alongside people who, you know, Quite we the reported eclectic, on, but they were mix, kind yeah. of couldn't be more different in yeah. terms of our background and, and, and world outlook. So it was it was a strange example of how, you know, there are occasions where you you need allies from different places, and the BBC was very very respected, but and Alan was very very mm. respected for his reporting in Gaza. Do you do you think most of the BBC journalists are kind of of that ilk, where it's just someone who wants to get the story out there, they've got, they've got kind of a principled approach, they want to show both sides. And you think as a sum total, when it comes to these huge stories like the war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan, the BBC inevitably always gets a hard time of it because it's such a big organisation and it's almost damned by its size. They've got to do things for the whole country. Mm. They can't just do something for certain demographics or certain groups or certain geographies. They've got to do something for everyone who pays the licence fee. And that's... And that gives the BBC a domestic bias, by the way. So one of the big biases at the BBC is a bias towards British news. And it's a global organisation, but if uh, somebody in, in, in the UK is affected directly by a story, that counts more editorial than someone somewhere else in the world who's sure. affected by a story. So that's one of the biases. Another bias is, you know, probably 
we'd be regarded as healthy biases, you know, in favour of um, things like democracy and, and elections <laughs> and uh, what a terrible bias, you know, yeah. uh, things things like that. I think there was there was an accusation, and I sort of saw a little bit of this in the early days. The BBC was was biased against business, mm. but I think I don't think that that accusation could could be levelled anymore. Um, sometimes you know, occasionally there's a like there's a story on say executive pay, which is always going to feature very prominently at the BBC, mm. and people might take the view that journalists are bringing their own kind of agenda into that a little bit. They're not paid terribly much and then all these kind of corporate fat cats out there so why is that story do you think sometimes they feel problems? the obligation to kind of shit on themselves <laughs> you know when those big stories come up i remember there was the guy before pre-tony hall there was the other director general when that when when there was all the all the scandal going on around uh jimmy savile and the fallout from that mm. and you know they actually led kind of with wall-to-wall coverage for a while of their own crisis do you mm. think they feel that obligation like okay we don't just as part of holding the you know the country to account and, it, and society and all its functionaries we should we have to hold ourselves to account to a huge degree and do you think sometimes they go over the top a little bit perhaps when there's a big story involving the bbc it would it would be reported yeah um, and that's one of the things the bbc does just brilliantly is report on itself i mean better than any mm. organization anywhere in the world mm. will be able to report on itself I, I don't think there's any other news organisation or media organisation that can do that as well as the BBC. So when when the BBC was being heavily criticised when something was going wrong, whether it was the um, you know the um, the Gilligan affair or or um, as you say the Savile thing or you know all the things that have really rocked the BBC, the BBC will will have reported those in great detail. And you have a situation where. BBC correspondent is phoning the BBC press office and asking the BBC press office to give them information <laughs> and the BBC press office is sometimes giving them information and sometimes not returning the call of their yeah. own reporters but they're, they're, you know and this all that 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 happens um that happens all the time uh the BBC you know because there's just so many stories that involve the BBC and I I think they are they are covered gently very very fairly, and it's, it's 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 something of a joy to watch. I think it's a bit of pride within the organisation that mm. we show how good we are bec- in the way we report on ourselves. Nobody and else can do that. Would you would you say if you look at other kind of broadcasters because of the commercial element that's there, yeah. they often don't do that. When I was at Sky, which yeah. was two thousand to two thousand and one, I remember going to cover the B Sky B results mm-hmm. and interview the. I've forgotten his name, but the chief executive of, 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 of Biscarby at that point in time. So it was a big press conference. I did an interview with him and then mm-hmm. I packaged up a report. I did not feel empowered to be critical in any way in that report. So were you holding back kind of with your questions? I was, and uh, no one told me to be. No yeah, one yeah. said, no one said, you know, you better kind of, you know, make this a good piece or not, it's the big cheese and so on. But I felt I didn't have that kind of culture behind me mm-hmm. that, I, that I would have had at the BBC where I could ask some of the tough questions. One of the biggest challenges it's been presented news-wise over the past few years is especially coming out of Brexit is this question of kind of impartiality versus objectivity about something mm. you know and, and one of the the things that many Remainers when you speak to them cite about the reason they lost the Brexit vote was because of the BBC they see it as the, this question of that it gave it equal airtime to a um, to an expert on economics who was going to um, say that leaving the EU would be a bad thing yeah. and leaving the EU would be a good thing. Yeah. 
despite the fact on one side there are you know a whole multiplicity of experts and on the other side there are maybe half a dozen do you think how how can they kind of square that circle i think that when, when it comes to there are the challenges in terms of the entertainment and all that side of things but those aside in front of news how can they how can they sort that situation um very difficult that's the million um, dollar question uh, <laughs> referendum yeah. you know we all know it's a it's a massively problematic binary question about something which is not binary mm-hmm. um, nor are the arguments can the arguments be weighed against each other and yet if a referendum has been called it's very hard for the, to see how the BBC could say um, you know we'll give 70% to that side and 30% to that side and even within those percentages you're just looking at the, the time that you're going to give on, on, on air the length of sound bites even and these things are meticulously worked out yep. in the BBC who gets what but then there's like how do I weigh um, that expert against that expert who's making the judgment mm-hmm. um, you know who, who, who are we in the editorial newsrooms to to decide, uh, you know, how that person's credibility stacks up against that person's credibility. So, you'd always have to make those kind of judgments, which is why a referendum is a, is a nightmare. And you'll always see, you know, whatever position the polls start at, and something like a referendum, they will narrow during the course of the campaign because mm. co- coverage is given to 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 both sides, and that's why typically, um, in in general elections as well, some of the those smaller parties who've done nothing during the course of the parliament but they got a certain number of votes in the last election they will then get a certain amount of coverage based on those votes and then their their the interest in them may go up during the course of the campaign doesn't mean they necessarily translate to seats and we had that we had a great example of that in, in 2010 when i was following nick clegg around on the yeah campaign i show. saw you were on the battle bus i was on the battle bus. yeah did you get caught up in clegg mania for a second yeah, yeah yeah it was it was um it was very hard at that time to to sort of separate um well separate a few things really you for for a start um and nick robinson the political editor at the time i remember him coming up to me after the first debate and he said you're on the right bus because at that point it was the yeah. most exciting story oh, so you'd you'd had the so they they'd given a correspondent to him pre even the first debate where you kind of yeah yeah into i was assigned public consciousness there was there was due to be an election um it was the time when gordon brown was thinking of calling an election didn't call an election. that was like 2008 2008 yeah, yeah. And, and at that point, I was actually still in the Middle East, in Iraq, and the, um, the news gathering editor called me up and said, if there is a snap election, could you come and do the Lib Dems? Could you come and be the Lib Because they were putting together an emergency plan mm-hmm. in case they had to get teams ready two weeks from now. So my name got attached to Liberal Democrats in 2008. And come 2010, it was still on the same You were sheet. just Lib Dem guy. Like, and yeah. people, at that point, people think, and I remember going, I was a Lib Dem guy, and, and, and I went to the spring conference, Lib Dem spring conference in yeah. 2010, and walked down the street through... Um, I think it was, in, it was in Birmingham. I walked with Nick Clegg down the street mm-hmm. um, to go to the evening drinks party. Nobody recognised him. Not one person knew who the hell he was. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, scroll forward a few months to after the first debate when he was seen to have done this amazing uh, performance. Uh, I think just in contrast with maybe the other two and, and, and expectations. Mm. I mean, if you look back at that debate now, I'd, I'd be interested to know how, how brilliant his performance was. But, he was, you know, he, did, he did, did a good job and suddenly... Everyone was like, "Wow, Lib Dems." Do you think it was get more just they just saw him for the first time? Kind of, they play, saw yeah. him. They thought, "Oh, there is someone different," and I was like, "Wow!" And then people said, "Lib Dems are going to get a hundred seats," and and of course, actually, where they ended up and when <laughs> they the regressed, results, they went back slightly <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, in yeah. that election. Which, um, but it was a, it was a hugely fun campaign, and I and I did like the Liberal Democrats personally. All the people on the bus were great, and and you heard stories of. Um, 
of those who were on the Cameron bus and the Brown bus and they didn't get any access to the leaders. Whereas Nick came and sat down to, uh, with us all the time. We were chatting, it was very, very open. It was a, Do it you, was, would, would that ever concern you though, getting a little bit like chummy in those kind of situations? Yeah, and I, there was one I saw report that you where went to you went to Westminster. Nick Clegg went to Westminster. It's probably like a kind of like old yeah, old schoolboy exactly. kind of thing. We had this it. discussion, and yeah. and, and, uh, and there was um, and at one point I remember there was a he was getting onto his his the private jet they'd hired, which we were all gone. And I did a piece to camera, or I was doing a piece to camera, and then he walked up to me and I said, "Good morning, Nick." And the the editor at Westminster uh, pulled me up on that. And said, "Avoid first names, Mike. You know, because you don't want to seem to." <laughs> Yeah. chummy even though I was calling him Nick of course day yeah because I was getting to know him quite well and to like him quite well and I still do like him um, but yeah to try and keep that sense of detachment given mm. that we'd been to the same school actually had very similar upbringings and outlooks on the world mm. and uh, I just remember one time we were at Westminster school but I said to, I suggested to him that he might send his own kids to to Westminster and he just like rolled his eyes at the at the very thought what people would do and say if he did that looking back I'm interested at the if your time at school, you went to Westminster. Yeah. These kind of formative years. Your dad was a political correspondent. He was a political editor. Yeah. Was it always kind of written in the stars for you to end up in, in those kind of positions? Did you always want to emulate him? Or no. I suppose it's a kind of cliched <laughs> question, but important. To... No, not at all. I, I, um, I mean, obviously it was, it was a bit, it was a bit odd for us as kids. You know, we saw mm. him on on the telly, uh, particularly during the um, the end of, of of Thatcher's time as prime minister, which mm-hmm. was when he, you know, he showed a shot to prominence quite quickly. So that was that was strange for us as a family. Mm. Uh, we didn't we didn't think that uh, of our father as any kind of you know celebrity reporter. And he did become very very well known overnight. Um, and and. In terms of my own career, I, I didn't want to be a journalist. I wasn't interested in journalism either at school or actually at university too much. Mm. I was I studied economics, but I was mainly interested in acting. I did a lot of theatre. I think I did 16, 16 different productions at Cambridge. And um, didn't write... I wrote theatre reviews. I didn't write anything for the student newspaper. I never made any kind of documentaries. I never did anything like that. And I, But I think back to, you know your father's influence on you I think just watching what an interesting career he had made it quite hard for me to say okay I'm going to go down and do the accountancy I'm going to go and work in investment bank one of the things a lot of people from the outside looking in when it comes to journalism they see it as quite exclusive exclusory mm-hmm. and perhaps a little nepotistic would you say that when you arrived there were quite a lot of downsides to having a dad who was in journalism in mm. that perhaps people saw you as kind of, oh, you know, he's taking it for granted, he's got it all laid out for him on a plate. Like, you know, there was maybe that assumption with wrong or right. Yeah, and I felt there was um, a lot of people who were making up their minds about me on those on that basis. Mm-hmm. I thought overall, it, you could probably ask him about it and say, you know, how, how helpful was it? How, how helpful could he be to me? Mm-hmm quite difficult you know there's, there's only so much your parents can do for you and I was really yeah. sort of proud as a young man I was, I'm determined that if I'm going to do this I'm going to do it on my own sure I'm not going to kind of ask him to have a word with his chum at Newsnight and get me the little thing there so I mm-hmm. got the internship at CNN on my own back and then I got to APTV and went to Reuters and was really forging my own path and getting to Sky News was terrific because 
it was not the BBC. So I, I got into Sky News as a correspondent at an incredibly young age. And the, the view was, well, if this guy's no good, he's not going to be hired because people don't give you a job on the basis of who your parents are. Mm -hmm. They give you a job on the basis of whether you can do the job. Mm -hmm. um, I took enormous inspiration from my father, enormous strength from his character and his experiences. Um, but I was, I was forging my own route. Now, that came to a, an abrupt end when at Sky News our whole unit was cut. But I, you know, I learned a lot in that time at Sky News, and and I and I wanted to have that path that wasn't the BBC. But then I, you know, I was then faced with kind of situation where I'd worked for Reuters, I'd worked for Sky News, I applied to ITN, I applied for, applied everywhere at that time. I didn't have a job. Yeah. And then the BBC business unit said, uh, you know, come in and and do some do some shifts on World Business Report. So actually, that was that was great. And then kind the door opened, and, and then I found myself weirdly following in my father's footsteps more than I thought I was ever going to and going to Westminster as well and sitting actually in a desk pretty near to where he would have worked at, at Millbank in his in his time there so um but it's nice we, we can we, we can talk about it now and we can share it and I think particularly now I've moved out of journalism yeah and I really am charting a course now that no one in my family has ever been on mm -hmm. um that I can look back on those times with fondness and, and think of my dad as a great great inspiration in in in, in my life even though I, I never you know, set out to do journalism. I almost kind of fell into it. Uh, yeah. When I was, do you uh, do you, do you think journalism, like it, it, by its nature, is often quite restrictive and, and and prevents certain people from getting into it? It's actually probably one of the intentions of this kind of show to mm. kind of unpack that for someone who who has no connections in the world at all. And you know, how how, how do you think some of the where, where does do the solutions lie? Um, I feel very strongly that diverse organisations are, are going to be successful organisations, mm -hmm. and it's that's not it's not just a nice thing to do. It's as you said, it's very legitimate reasons for doing it in terms of the kind of backgrounds that you're bringing in, the kind of perspectives, the kind of networks that you're, that you're mm -hmm. accessing, and the kind of contacts that people have. And I think you know, again, on something like Brexit, all of the kind of established media was very exposed because it wasn't, it didn't have eyes and ears on the ground throughout the UK in different communities to see how this vote was progressing. So that's one example where I think, you know, journalism was a victim of its own elitism. Mm -hmm. It's not the way it ever felt to me, actually, mm. within the BBC. I felt like, if, if anything, I was discriminated against as <laughs> in uh, what sense? a public school boy, okay, an yeah. Oxbridge guy, white, you know, middle class, mm. with a father who's a, a journalist. I mean, uh, it, it, in fact, one of the BBC editors who shall remain nameless me, took me to one side and said, we are under tremendous pressure to employ people who are not like you. Yeah. Who are not like mm. you. Imagine saying that to someone in a minority group. Yeah. Those yeah. very words. You know, we're going to employ people who are not like you. Yeah. So I think there... But there were presumably a lot of people who were like you. Uh, yeah, so there were. Not they were necessarily under threat. No, no, no. Yeah. And I'm not saying that <laughs> yeah, I, was, yeah, yeah. I was this great sort of victimised yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. group or anything. No, of course, of course I wasn't. And I had, had every, every advantage and every ability to... To, to certainly get in the door, but you know within the organisation, I sometimes felt that um, you know if it was a choice between me and someone else who would bring more of that diversity, mm -hmm. what would the choice be? Mm. I, I have no evidence that I was ever discriminated against. All mm. I do know is that I went for a lot of jobs and didn't get them. Yeah, and and then actually <laughs> I did get jobs that I didn't even kind of want to get or yep. think that I was qualified for. So. But maybe that's just life. It's bizarre, and you can't you can't overinterpret it, and you can't look too hard at people's people's 
motives or why they do the things they do. So if you if you got the call from Tony Hall and he was like, Mike, we, we need you back in the in the newsroom, there would be no equivocation. You'd be like, no. No, oh, no I wouldn't go back to the newsroom. No, yeah. no. What, what I, I think now I, I'm closer to being a participant. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's an interesting move. So we, we talked about impartiality and you know, being the observer mm-hmm. of news. Now I'm more in it. In a, in a, I'm helping people take positions. Sure. And that means that I feel more tempted that one day I could take a position. In fact, as a reporter, because I spent so much time thinking of different angles on stories, I, I ended at the BBC feeling very confused about the world and, mm. and the idea that I would have a really clear idea of which campaign I would want to be part of. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But, but, but yeah, I see, you know, we see it. It's this, it, back to the same arguments about you know, public relations journalism. You know, a lot, of, a lot of PR is actually kind of forms of campaigning journalism now. It may not present as such, but you're, you're, you're taking a position on behalf of somebody. You're creating content around that. You're writing things that look like news stories around that position. And then you're pushing them out on certain networks. It's, it's not the kind of journalism I did or actually wanted to do at mm. the time. But it's, uh, it's, it's a big challenge because, um, you know, and we've seen in, in elections around the world and, you know, populism and the kind of uh, political currents that have been running the last few years, just how campaigning journalism like that can have huge, huge impact. Yeah. And, and it's actually much more. I think that goes hand in hand with social media though. Yeah, hand in hand yeah. with social media, hand in hand with ownership of your own distribution channels. Yeah. Um, the ease of content creation, yeah. you know, for us all now. We can, yeah. we can all, all make we television, we can make podcasts <laughs> yeah. and we can, we can package thing up, things up in different ways. So yeah. it's exciting, it's exciting. Sure. But then you're creating a, a new world here, which is, is um, you know, really, really hard to, to predict where it's going and really, really hard to know who the good guys are and really, really hard to know how it all balances out and how it affects the minds of, of the population. So your book's coming out, it's coming out, what, when, what, what date is it coming yeah, out? Yeah, April the, the 18th. So the thesis of the yeah. book is, is the book's called PR for Humans. Is that making PRs more journalist friendly so that journalists no, don't No, no, it's, it's, to be honest, it's more aimed, well, it's two things. First of all, if you want a good reputation, yep. you have to tell a good story. If stories are about people, yep. the best stories are human stories. They are about people. They're about characters. So if you look at a company, you, you, one of the judgments we're all making is, is this company human? You know, can I look at it and see what this company does for people? Mm-hmm. Is it led by someone who looks and sounds like a human being? Can they stand and deliver a speech that's not robotic and not awkward and not weird? Can they do media interviews in which they sound like a, a genuine human being? So there's a sort of humanity test. Yep. And then there's a story test. Do you think your career in journalism gave you an insight into that? Though? Yeah. You've because, got, so, you know, day to day you have to interact with human beings yeah, as part of it's, the journalism. It's, it's what it's all about. Yeah. And, and, and if, if, if companies are just, just spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations and piles of documents and, um, you know, PR people saying they're strategic consultants and they're influencer engagement mm-hmm. reputation managers and they're this and they're that. I've never known an industry in such denial about what it actually is as the mm-hmm. PR industry, which is just public relations, relations with the public. There's nothing inherently sinister about that. Mm-hmm. You, all you're doing is, is, is telling people what you're up to, hoping the people out there find what you do interesting and engaging and truthful. Truth is, is a very important concept. And then we make our judgments. We make our judgments on, on reputation based on the facts, the real stuff, the truth of what, what, what a company or an individual does, but also the stories they tell. I suppose that's what um, kind of PR can learn from journalism and that kind of compelling human form of, form of storytelling. What do you think journalism might be able to learn from the world of public relations as one kind of takeaway? 
the um, the world's a complicated place. That actually simplifying it is 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 difficult. And as a journalist, you lose a lot of the, the subtleties mm -hmm. inevitably because you're just trying to provide um, that snapshot of a moment in time. I think public relations people are uh, generally able to see the positive change mm -hmm. they see uh, you know when things get better so if 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 um, knife crime falls you know pr people will will know that journalists yeah. will not see it yeah um if if things uh things go wrong journalists will be all over it if things are improving uh they won't so i think i think journalists can learn uh that there is huge positive change going on in the world mm -hmm. um that they they can't see because they've got the negative um specs on and that to change the world for the better takes people of courage who are prepared to take a stand and not just be observers but participants in change and to get up tell their stories and believe in their stories and communicate powerfully with audiences and that's where for me it gets really exciting because i'm thinking of pr as as as, as looking back through the sweep of human history looking at the great storytellers who've lived and shaped civilizations mm -hmm. and, and every single thing that's happened has has been the result of somebody being able to mobilize an audience through communication mm -hmm. um people who've, who've been able to assemble powerful stories have shaped um governments and organizations they've hacked the path of history they've been they've been the change makers sure. while journalists have observed so you know journalists can say take a sort of morally superior viewpoint but i think there's something very powerful about being the participant and mm -hmm. this is why I, I get my sort of emotional energy from and my purpose now in my role is 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 the participation yep um rather and i'm not a spin I'm not, it's not about spin i think it might be a good idea to wrap up on some quick five questions okay um i've got 12 here gosh <laughs> <laughs> try and answer them quickly you know top yeah. straight off the top of your head um so I'll, i'd start with shorthand dictaphone or microphone microphone most overused word slash phrase in journalism remains to be seen most overlooked word slash phrase in journalism things are looking up <laughs> you're definitely you've definitely paid to the prs and the kind of jealous of the yin and yang kind of okay, positive no, no apologies then i'm falling into this uh, you're pring this podcast um yeah. uh uh favorite journalist dead or alive um, Mike Sargent, Jeremy Byrne, <laughs> no, Jeremy, Jeremy Byrne, Byrne who's, uh, yeah. who's, who's kindly endorsed my book, which I'm very proud of. Um, story you wish you'd reported on? Um, Watergate, <laughs> cliche. Brexit, probably not. Uh, not Brexit. <laughs> um, I wanted to go to Afghanistan, but I never got the chance. So I'll say Afghanistan. BBC, ITV, or Sky? BBC. Um, Times New Roman or Sans Serif or whatever what font would you choose what font would you like Times to New Roman in? Um, that mean, does that mean you read the Times newspaper I do. yeah every day, every day. <laughs> uh, breaking news or long read breaking news print or digital digital now um, best headline or top line you've ever seen newspaper or from the news from, from the um, news broadcast It's a tough one, isn't it? It goes so fast, you've forgotten them all. I know. Um, I don't know. We'll up, your, to, up yours to Lord. We'll have to come back. <laughs> we'll have to the come back. To ones, I'm a huge fan of tabloid headlines. The Freddie Star one. Like, Freddie Star, Star right, my hamster. hamster. Yeah, yeah. Um, what does journalism need more of? PR. <laughs> uh, thinkers. 
What does journalism need less of? Um, Perfect. Mike Sergeant, thank you. Okay, thanks. Thanks. <laughs>